Be purposeful. Dr. Richard, the the thing where I found my salvation, the thing where I went from a a kid that was a rebel without a clue, was a lost kid, probably smoking weed that I shouldn't have smoked and done things that I kind of wished I didn't in hindsight. What saved me from all that was being purposeful. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and we have a terrific guest to share with you today. David Osborne is the principal owner of the sixth largest real estate company in the United States with over 4,500 agents, exceeding $9 billion in sales within the past year alone. David has also been voted for three consecutive years as being one of the top 100 most influential people in real estate. In addition to owning regions and brokerages, David is a New York Times bestselling author and the principal of a private equity group that has bought and sold approximately 1,000 homes. He also owns more than 1,500 apartment units, office, retail, and industrial buildings. Firmly rooted in the principle of knowledge sharing and giving back, he is the founder and operating partner of GoBundance, an accountability-based group of hard-charging, generous entrepreneurs living exceptional lives. Further, David sits on the board of directors for the nonprofit One Life Fully Lived, and he contributes to various causes from fighting cancer to building clean water wells through charity. David, welcome to the show. Great to be with you, Dr. Richard. So there's so much we could jump into, and, and I want to start with your story because I think it's so interesting. You don't have an accent, but you were raised in Europe. Talk to us about you know, what brought you over there, what it was like over there, and what things you learned overseas before you came back to the United States and started your career. You know, I was a military brat, Dr. Richard. Many people can relate to that. Uh, you get moved a lot, I think, 10 times by the time I was 13. My dad was based mostly in Germany. And uh, he finished out his career in London at the embassy as the military attache. He was a full bird colonel. So my youth was spent following my dad around with my brother, sister, and mom from military base to military base. And then ultimately, they put me in a boarding school in England when I was seven years old. And I spent seven through 13 basically in school in England at a all-boys military type school with corporal punishment, extremely challenging education. And very little, uh, much more time at school than at home. And and during that, you know, opportunity, I think the biggest takeaway is when I finally got back to America, I had been in so many cultures and exposed to so many different cities that I didn't have a narrow perspective of a what was possible or b what you know what life should look like. I didn't have a cultural imprint, if you will. I'd literally been an American military brat till I was six. Then I went to an all British school when I graduated. You know, got out of that school at thirteen. I had a pure British accent. I came back to America and I lost that accent. But what that enabled me to understand is that the blueprint you have for your life, the imprint, if you will, from your cultural upbringing is a changeable thing. I don't know that many people get that. So 
when I finally later on in life got into business and I learned, you know, from the Tony Robbins of the world or from, you know, the different philosophies of the world or different ways to approach business, even the victim versus accountability mindset, it was quite easy for me to sort of see and relate to the fact that what we perceive in the world is really something we can change. And that as you change your perceptions, you change your results. So really, I I don't want to be cliche and say, you know, citizen, you know, of the world, because I'm really not. I'm an American. I love America. I think it's the greatest country on the earth. But but that experience showed me there are other ways of being, other ways of thinking. And then it also instilled in me a desire to travel that I that still to this day, you know, I have to get away every year someplace. I've been in over 70 countries and hitchhiked over around the world one way and hitchhiked all through Scotland when I was a kid. And I've just had a lot of really great experiences. And I think if I hadn't had that roaming youth, then I wouldn't have had that desire to see the world. The way that you described that, David, was so interesting. You You referenced this as an opportunity, which I think is is fantastic because many people probably, if they got sent to a harsh boarding school, would view that as a negative experience. And you viewed it as an opportunity, which I'm sure impacts the way that you see everything today. And I think that's terrific. And so let's talk about America then. So you, you came back to America, you lost that accent. And talk to us about your early business days. What What were your influences? What inspired you and what got you started on the road that you're in today? So it's funny. I wish I'd kept the accent, Dr. Richard, because, you know, people really like it as an adult. But as a kid, having moved so many times, I think I mostly just wanted to fit in and it just slowly slipped away. And it was easy to slip away because I had had an American accent through age seven. But what I what I got back to America, I was a little bit of a rebel without a clue. And what I mean by that is um, the discipline had been pretty hard over in Europe. And I found American schools had very little discipline. And my dad was a pretty tough disciplinarian, too. So I, I got in a little bit of trouble and sort of you know, I was one of those rebellious students, got asked to leave a couple private schools. But all along, I liked working. I liked, I was a good worker. And I, I started a lawn mowing company actually when I was 17 years old, still living at home, made $20,000 that year, thought I was wealthy. I bought, you know, two trucks. I hired other guys to cut yards for me. And uh, it was all going pretty well, I thought. I bought a computer and a truck, the two fastest depreciating items you could possibly buy. So I learned about depreciation. Uh, and then I, uh, you know, I got to graduation and I think I was still 17 because the English school for all its differences, it was a very high academic environment. I still graduated at 17, even in spite of getting in trouble. And, uh, my dad said, look, you can join the Marines. You can, you know, quit, you can get out of the house, uh, or you can go to college, your, your choice. And I really wanted to run my lawn mowing business for a couple of years, but I showed him I went to college and failed almost all my classes the first semester while continuing to make money cutting yards. And uh, that led to further rebellion and trouble. I managed to make my way through college in sort of a non-memorable way. But again, I worked all the, way, all the time through college. I always liked working. I always tried to be the fastest worker. My first job out of college was door-to-door sales for a computer company, which was walking into skyscrapers, knocking on doors, and trying to sell computer systems. Um, I was the top salesperson most months, one or two in the company most months. Uh, of course, I always say that with tongue in cheek because there were only three salespeople in the company, but uh, and one of them barely worked. So after working there for a year and making some money, um, I decided that my best friend who was one year behind me and his family had a tradition of going around the world for a year after graduating college. Uh, he'd asked me to go a hundred times. I decided I was going to take him up on that offer. And I went hitchhiking around the world, sold my car, all my possessions, went hitchhiking from Europe through Africa to India, all the way over to South America and then back home. 
what was supposed to be one year stretched into two years and three months. Met a girl I thought I was going to marry. Turned out it, I didn't. It didn't work out. But just had some amazing adventures. Uh, came back dead broke. And when I came back dead broke, I got a job pretty quickly in, com- in computer sales again at Novell. But when, when, when they had me sign the contract to employ them, it said that anything I thought of, dreamed of, or made up belonged to them. And I, I, I just felt I'd had two years of liberation. I said, there's no way I can work under these conditions. I quit before even getting my first you know, hour of work in just while filling out the paperwork. I'd gone through all the interviews. And then my mom uh, was a realtor in Austin. And you know, I was like, holy, I felt elated for a day that I'd walked on my own terms from this job and then completely freaked out that I had no money. I was $1,500 <laughs> in debt. And uh, I, my mom said, why don't you come work for me in real estate for a little bit? And uh, I said, mom, I don't want to work in real estate. You know, you got into it. I never saw you again, but I'll do it temporarily while I look for a real job. And the rest is history. I happened to join the fastest growing residential real estate company in the US. I got into it. I found it wasn't that hard. Sales was, you know, it, it was hard to find buyers and sellers. Serving them wasn't that hard. It was just a matter of taking care of people and taking care of business, which is pretty natural to me. And then the company was expanding quickly and they said, hey, we need people to open franchises. And I think they were learning as I was learning. And so with my parents backing, uh, went up to Dallas and started opening up offices with every penny I had going into it. My folks weren't wealthy either, but a lot of their money as well. And somehow we struggled through and managed to open up real estate offices that worked. And the company grew, we grew. I kept opening franchises and basically became the sixth largest residential real estate company in the US in 2017. Bought my folks out in 1999 or maybe 2000. And then, you know, it's been a a great journey from there. But, you know, I was talking to someone the other day, you look back on it and you can see the path you took and it seems way easier now than it was when I was going through it. So there were a lot of trials and tribulations, a lot of pain, but you just keep walking forward, got to the other side and and have had some good success, you know, And, and, and you asked, I think originally who was my number one mentor. I think I was lucky enough other than my mom, who I think, even though she doesn't have a college degree, was one of the most wonderful and articulate, hardworking, high-integrity people that I could have ever had coaching me. But Gary Keller was also the founder of the company, and he's an academic and a teacher, and he was my first mentor. He's a billionaire today, a multi-billionaire, and uh, he taught me a tremendous amount at a very young age. One of the things that struck me was you you basically said to your mom, can I work here until I get a real job? And it ended up being essentially your career. At what point, David, into the real estate adventure, did you really realize this is it? I can do amazing things in this capacity. You know, it's a great question. And I was always interested in real estate because my folks had had rental properties when I was 15 and I'd cut yards on them and I'd evicted people and cleaned up after people. So I'd always kind of, I'm sorry, 17, not 15, 15, I was working construction. So similar space. I'd always liked real estate in the space. I just didn't want to sell. And so when I got into real estate, I remember pretty quickly I had some success. I sold a, a buddy from college a house and I made $5,000. I was like, wow, that wasn't really that bad. I mean, I had to put in a lot of work, a lot of hours, but ultimately I liked the guy. We got to drive around a car, look at properties and I got $5,000. So that was pretty cool. But even after that, after two or three years, I was like, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. There's a lot of people in real estate that I felt like were just going through the motions. I never wanted to be somebody that just went through the motions. I wanted to live with spirit. I wanted to live fully engaged my entire life. That's the one thing that going around the world taught me was not to mail it in. I just didn't want to mail it in. I see people mailing it in. I, you know, I don't blame them, but that's just not what I wanted to do. And I just thought, you know, transactional real estate isn't necessarily for me, but, it, but I, I, I remember one day I was driving down the same street for the third time saying the same thing with a third set of buyers 
And I, I said to myself, man, there's got to be something better. So I, I, at that point, my folks were just starting to talk about maybe opening an office in Dallas. Austin was sold. And uh, so I said, you know, I started going up with them to Dallas, checking it out, jumped on onto that program. And I thought, you know what, maybe opening businesses is the way to go. I've always thought of myself more as a leverage guy. Even when I had the lawn mowing company, I started hiring other crews to work for me. And that went extraordinarily, uh, you know, well in the long run at the time. So, so three years after being in sales, I just, again, sold everything, moved to Dallas and started opening franchises for Keller Williams and for the North Texas, New Mexico region. And that's when I started enjoying it from a business point of view. I was working through employees. I was building, you know, building businesses. But even then, there was a tremendous amount of pain and struggle. And I would say that was 97, 8, 9. You know, those are the tough years, 2000, 2001. And then we started getting some momentum. And I was very lucky, too, in that in 1994, started a real estate boom that lasted all the way till 2007. So, you know, a 13, 14-year real estate boom, which normally there's seven years so I got to kind of build my companies in this upward wave of, of real estate sales. I got to build an upward wave of a company. And at the same time, I worked really hard. And, and so somewhere along the lines of that process, I fell in love with learning, Dr. Richard, and I fell in love with business. And, the, and the, what I loved about learning is in college or in high school, I never understood it. Like It seemed like they were just making me learn stuff that I would never use. But all of a sudden in business, in sales, I would learn a script and the script would make me more effective. In business, I would learn how to read financials and I'd become a better business person. I'd learn how to hire and I'd build a better business. So I, I, somewhere the light came on and I would say today I'm, one of, I'm like a 4.0 or a 5.0 student. Like I'm, I'm still not a Harvard Ivy League type, but I read constantly. I read 30 books a year. I apply myself. I write my goals, write my vision. I'm I'm doing my business plans. I'm I'm constantly applying my myself to the the, the mission I have, which is to build world class businesses. And in terms of you know, one of the things you said was you talked about people mailing it in, but you always wanted to bring passion, bring the experiences, bring who you are into the business world. So how did you apply? All of those experiences, all of that passion, all of what makes David Osborne, David Osborne, how did you start applying that into real estate? You know, I've met some people in my life that I felt like were walking corpses. In other words, they were like zombies. They were just going through the motions. They weren't passionate about their work. They weren't all in for it, you know, just selling their time. And I think there's just a part of me that never wanted to be that. I didn't mind doing things I didn't want to do for time. Uh, for periods of time, but I didn't want to just not be engaged in what I was involved in. And I think, you know, just keeping that fire in, alive inside that I've, I've seen in a lot of entrepreneurs and probably the reason I relate so well to entrepreneurs and the reason I wrote my book, Wealth Can't Wait for Entrepreneurs, and we have our GoBundance group for entrepreneurs is most entrepreneurs keep that fire burning. They have no choice. And when you're put in a situation where you have no choice but to succeed or not succeed, you have to keep the fire burning. And that to me is what a fulfilled life is. And whether it's charity, I mean, I, uh, it could be I spent a lunch with a guy yesterday who does a charity that he's all in for, like literally mortgages his house to the hilt. He's now been doing it 17 years. Now he's doing a $60 million raise to end the homelessness in Austin. But, my, but he had to go all in and that going all in keeps you alive and keeps your cells firing. I love that. And, and you, you talked about the book and you talked about GoBundance, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. But at what point did you realize that you wanted to write a book? Like what, what sparked that for you? But I'd had some success. Things were moving along. And then uh, all of a sudden, you know, it's 2006, you know, things are booming. I'm making more money than ever. And I got a job to come down to Austin and work in uh, corporate at the head office and sort of, they paid me a lot of money. 
I remember moving down, buying a house, and then boom, my uh, my dad gets diagnosed with cancer in May of 2006. Mm. And, and it was a game-changing experience for me. He was a Green Beret and a tough old, old guy, and he uh, slowly melted away in front of my eyes over three years. And as I nursed him in 2008, I kind of slowed everything down so I could spend a tremendous amount of time with my dad. You know, he, as he faded away, I, I realized he was going to take all his stories with him. He was a good storyteller and had a lot of stories from the military and stuff. And I was like, you know, there's a lot of stories I won't remember. And then I thought to myself, uh, you know, what about my kids? Well, how will they remember me? What if something happened to me like this and I faded away? What would be left behind? And that was the initiative of sort of thinking I should write a book. It took me a lot of years, a lot more than I thought it would. I mean, I didn't get serious about it for a year or two, but it really the conception to completion was nine years and I spent seven years working really hard on it. But the, the premise was leave behind some wisdom. I'm not a storyteller like my dad. I didn't have the funny stories that he had about the military, but I felt like I'd build a pretty solid foundation on how to succeed in life and how to succeed economically in business. And I wanted to transfer that into a book and leave it behind for my kids. That was the original motivation. I love that, leaving a legacy behind. So that legacy is your New York Times bestselling book, Wealth Can't Wait. David, take us through the book and what are the, the key tenets of it? Yeah, so it's, you know, and I think people, I think it would be, it's great for anybody starting out in business. It's great for people that are in business and struggling. I mean, the further you get down the success, you know, road, there's a common language for success. You, you mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, call about opportunities. Well, one of the common languages of success is you look at your challenges as opportunities, opportunities to grow, opportunities to get stronger. That's what they are. And so this book is basically written from that sort of perspective of you got to start off with the correct, you know, mental state to be successful. You know, successful entrepreneurs have a commonality about them. They have a way of looking at life and, and you can learn that way of life. At the very beginning of the call, we talked about me being in different cultures and learning how you could choose your own culture, your own perspective, but ultimately winning and success is a culture. It's a way of viewing things. And so we start off with that, the, the choice you have to make to be wealthy and the choices you don't get to be a victim. You don't get to complain. You don't, you can have pity parties for like a day, but then, or a few minutes, and then you got to get over it and get on with it. Because if you're truly you building a business, it doesn't matter how many good excuses you have. The only thing that'll change the outcome is action. And so that's where it starts at is the choice and understanding the kind of the fine line you make going forward. And then it moves into the mindsets. And just really developing healthy mindsets around opportunity, uh, scale, getting after it. Then after the, the mindset, we move into the habits. There's certain things you just have to do on a daily basis uh, to be successful. Uh, then we talk about a business plan and the kind of business that you can use to build wealth. And this is where it gets more advanced. And that's where you're talking about having a moat, hiring the best people, client acquisition being the number one thing. And then finally, we talk about momentum and creating virtuous cycles, which ultimately, if you can sit your life into a virtuous cycle, you can have just an amazing, abundant life. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. 
You talked about the mindset several times, and even in the beginning of our talk, you mentioned a victim versus accountability mindset. What would you say to somebody listening to this that has had a really rough go of circumstances and and feels as though life has dealt them a pretty pretty rough hand? How, how do you help people transition how to, from that victim mindset to one of an accountability mindset? I'd start by saying congratulations. I can't tell you how many super successful people I meet that had a really, really tough beginning. Now, not everyone, but plenty, plenty, plenty. I don't know about the Bill Gateses and the Jeff Bezos and the Warren Buffetts, but in the world I live in with the scrappy millionaires that are worth from one to 25, 30, 40 million dollars, more than half of them had a very difficult childhood from beatings from their dad to extreme poverty. So it's almost an advantage. And when I talk to groups, I say, you know, like, you know, when I grew up, my dad was really tough on us. Okay. So he was, he would have been considered abusive by the modern world in his time, probably not. And then moving so often, you know, never having friends that lasted longer than one year or two years at tops. And then getting a little bit lost in high school and doing some drugs and, you know, uh, things like that. All these things that were my losses ended up becoming my wins because I, I now know why I'm driven to be successful. I'm driven to be successful to never put myself in a situation where I can be controlled by other people, right? And that's what I see a lot of times. So really, if you've had a tough upbringing, congratulations. You should have more reasons to generate positive, virtuous momentum in your life than a person that just has a normal, comfortable life. So in reality, while it's, it's very difficult and there's a lot of really, really good reasons for, you know, just curling up in a ball in the corner and, and giving up or crying, I get it. I mean, life is not easy and people have had it 100,000 times harder than I have. So I've seen that. But what I found is my challenges, my difficulties have been really the energy, the rocket fuel for me to launch into success, not, not my easy parts. So the more challenging your life has been in many ways, if it's, it's the opportunity to take that and turn it into something positive that will drive you further than others. And I think you have to have a really strong propellant in your life to go through the things entrepreneurs go through. And I think um, you know, that, that difficult uh, beginning is often that propellant. I love that. And here again, reframing it into, you know, from adversity to opportunity, much like you talked about your time in England when you were a young child. That's, that's terrific. David, there's something I want to ask you in your book. We've talked about the mindset a little bit and you know, that propellant, if you will. One of the things uh, in your book is a chapter on avoiding seven wealth traps. Talk to us about what wealth traps are and then how we can avoid them. Yeah, sure. So you know, people fall into wealth traps and that's where you're kind of, your environment must support your goals and if you don't have an environment around you that will help you support your goals, uh, you're going to get stuck. And the most important one, I think, is the, is, the wealth, is the trap of the social circle. So you must make sure you have a powerful social circle, people around you that inspire you and encourage you. If your friends just want to drink beer all the time or go out and you know, date people on Saturday and Friday night or... Uh, just not do anything productive with their lives, play video games all the time. If that's your circle, it's really hard to break out of that circle. But if your friends like wake up every day and want to charge the nearest hill and go for a run and achieve, 
that will drive you. And it, it drove me. I remember having feelings of procrastination and not, not being good enough and not making stuff happen fast enough. But I'd surrounded myself with pretty accomplished people. I had peer partners in, in different places in the country that, that helped stay, support me when I was feeling down and pushed me towards achievement. So the second one I would say is the cushy job trap. I see this all the time. Brilliant, bright people with great ideas get stuck. And then they, they're making 70, 80, 90, 100 grand a year. They got a they got a kid, they get married, and they never pursue that opportunity. The sooner you pursue your opportunity, the better, because you're going to make a thousand mistakes. And every mistake is going to be like a, you're playing, you're paying the idiot taxes, like another course at Harvard. Like every mistake, you want to get out there and fail fast and frequently and as quickly as possible. People avoid risk. That's another trap. You know, don't, you should embrace risk. There is really not the risk of dying. Most people don't die from opening a business. So so get after it. Take risk. Again, risk leads to the outsized rewards in life. And you'll probably have multiple failures. Most people that are successful in business have multiple failures, but they take risk over and over again. So get comfortable with risk. And then eventually you see it really isn't that big a risk. The other one's being a know-it-all. You know, don't be a know-it-all. Like you think you know everything. If you, if you can't be taught new things, you're not going to succeed in business. And you have to have uh, almost like a beginner's mind constantly. Like, okay, let's just say I started today for the first time. No matter how successful you are, start each day at zero. Today's a new day. What entrenched perspective do I have that is inaccurate, that is blocking my ability to succeed at a higher level? So yeah, there's there's a lot of wealth traps you just want to avoid and, and keep your life moving forward in a pos- positive direction towards your goals. Everything you said really resonates with, strongly with me, and I'm sure it does with, with our audience. And you've done exactly what you've talked about. And one of the things that you've done in terms of building knowledge, sharing knowledge, and giving back is creating a group called GoBundance. Talk to us a little bit about GoBundance and, and what it does. So GoBundance is a group of men committed to, towards going towards abundance. And the idea is that we get together. And we hold each other accountable to our visions for our life. We're built on six pillars, uh, genuine contribution, making a difference in the lives of others, authentic relationships, being real, transparent, and authentic with one another, extreme accountability. So we have, uh, we set our goals out. We discuss them on a regular basis. We, keep, we create pods where people hold each other accountable. Financial freedom. So we want every one of our group members to become financially free. And we talk about that a lot. Strategies for building what we call 100% wealth, where 100% of your economic needs are met by money coming in every month. Uh, Bucket list adventures. We believe that by throwing yourself into foreign environments, whether it's whitewater rafting the Zambezi, which the guys did last year, or going to Japan and doing an all-night run that we're doing this year. Uh, Not fast, by the way. It's not competitive. It's just what the monks do. We're putting ourselves in situations we're not comfortable with. And that discomfort gives us an opportunity to, you know, see life differently and entrepreneurs have to see life differently. So that's kind of our pillars and how we approach uh, our lives. And it's really a a group that when we get together at our conferences, we meet in the morning and do some stuff. And then we take all day off and we usually go do some adventure activity, whether it's just play ultimate Frisbee or go skiing or whatever you choose to do. And then we reconvene at four o'clock and run till 11 o'clock at night. So it goes back to what I said, Your, your social circle would determine your destiny. And in our group, we've got a guy that's got three martial arts schools. We've got a guy that has a virtual assistant company. We've got a guy that has a trucking company with 300 trucks. But everyone have this common drive, this vision, this purposefulness. And it's way easier, I've found, to be purposeful when you're surrounded by purposeful people. When I was in high school, I had moments where I felt like I was a big procrastinator and I never followed through on my plans and my dreams. And, and today, I'm probably one of the most purposeful 
people you'll ever meet, but that's just because I've applied myself to it over 25, 30, you know, years and, and, and it becomes over time, second, second nature, second habit, because you, you, you not only apply yourself, but you surround yourself with people that are doing it and then it becomes contagious. Success is contagious. And I think failure is as well. I love that success is contagious failures as well. And it goes back to what you said, we become who we surround ourselves with. I paraphrase it a little bit, but that's essentially what, what you led on to. So if, if we are associating ourselves with people that want to do amazing things, we shall as well. And speaking of amazing things, I know that giving back is so important to you. Talk to us a little bit about some of the charitable endeavors that you're involved in. Yeah. So like I've, I've got a mission. So I've, I, I've, I've got a mission of giving away a hundred million dollars in my lifetime. So that's my new mission that I'm very inspired by. So, so currently I give to three different charities. Um, one is around clean water, bringing clean water to Africa and, uh, helping people, you know, there's 700 million people that, that every day their, uh, their job is to find clean water. And it's not just Africa, it's India and Cambodia, but mostly I focus on Ethiopia. And um, it's, it's about digging wells and changing people's destinies. Uh, one of the charities I'm involved in there also builds schools. They do microloans and they do hospitals. So really just changing the entire destiny for a community of people so that they have the opportunity to create and, and work. I mean, we are so lucky in America. And that's one thing I realize every day is how lucky I've been and how lucky we are to live in this great country because we just have so much opportunity here. We have clean water. We have food. We have shelter. Most of those things in many, many countries, that's the number one concern they have. So that's that's the clean water program. I'm also on the board for Habitat for Humanity in Austin here, trying to just bring affordable housing to people. And, you know, this is more of a help for the middle class because, you know, Austin's getting so expensive and we do great work. It's such a wonderful board. Um, I'm, natu- I'm not naturally a meeting person, but the board, just gr- a lot of really great, really successful people committed to making a difference for if it's only 30 families a year, that those 30 families are getting a home to live in that they otherwise wouldn't own and couldn't afford based on how expensive Austin is. Most recently, I got involved with uh, Community First, and that's with a guy here who's doing a $60 million raise. I'm going to be one of the 60 that helps raise a million bucks over the next 10 years. And if you want to help me with that, you can reach out to me. I'm sure you'll have my contact info on the website. But we're, you know, Alan Graham is trying to end homelessness in Austin. Uh, he's, he's built a community for the homeless. It's been massively successful. And so that's, again, just trying to cure homelessness. Like, let's have no homeless people on the streets in Austin. And a lot of what I do, and then I give to a couple other, like, experiential, like, front row foundation and, and experiential charities for kids that have maybe, or people that have disease and maybe sometimes terminal disease or sometimes just, you know, extreme challenges. So, and then I keep a certain budget for just things that catch my eye and catch my fancy. Another friend of mine created a charity called One Life Fully Lived. And he's all in for it. And it's really all about bringing the, the technologies of success to people that don't have access to it. So taking it into the inner cities, taking it into the schools in the, maybe the middle class or poor areas. So, so people can understand you have a choice. You can have a choice around your success. You don't have to be a victim of your circumstances. So those are all my areas. And I'm trying to give away, like I said, $100 million over the rest of my lifetime. And I'm super excited about that goal. And it's funny how much you know, I write bigger and bigger checks every year. And uh, there's always a slight fear around that, but it always seems to come back to me 10 times over. That is so beautiful. And, you know, regarding the $60 million race you mentioned, what we'll do is for all of the charities that you've spoken about, I'll make sure 
that those are in the show notes as well as the Daily Helping app. So everybody listening to this can jump right in and to help those causes, which are fantastic. Thank you. Well, David, we're just about at time, and I, and I enjoyed this so much. As you know, I ask all of my guests with a single question, and that is, what is your biggest helping? The single most important piece of information you'd like somebody to walk away with after listening to this today? Be purposeful. Dr. Richard, the, the thing where I found my salvation, the thing where I went from a, a kid that was a rebel without a clue, was a lost kid, probably smoking weed that I shouldn't have smoked and done things that I kind of wished I didn't in hindsight. What saved me from all that was being purposeful. When I found purpose in my life uh, to build a business, to hire great people, to help the families in my business, to give back money, to be a great father, to be a great husband, to make a difference in the world. Once I really got in touch with my purpose and then wrote 